Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number three. I have a hard time keeping them straight sometimes. Class number three of the Princess Bride class. Uh, uh, we're entering our bonus class this week, <clears throat> which I've been really looking forward to. So, okay. Quick announcements. Uh, there's nothing brand new to announce, but just to review a couple things from previous times. Don't forget that on Friday afternoon at 12.30 is my Lotro stream. That's been really fun. Last week was awesome. Um, I went through uh, through the show. I went through Hobbiton and Bag End. We did an interior tour of Bag End and uh, found the Rabbit Room and the Burden Baby. And uh, it was it, I had a great time uh, with the stream last week. I've been uh, that was the second time I did it, uh, and I'm really enjoying myself more and more every time. It's, it's such a fun way uh, to get to not only kind of do a tour of the visual Lotro Middle Earth. But think about the kinds of choices they're making in doing adaptations. Uh, and then also, of course, get the opportunity to talk about a whole lot of Tolkien stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a really fun way to do a kind of guided rambling commentary uh, on, you know, various sort of themes and concepts. Um, so, of course, we're doing mostly Shire-related stuff last time. We'll be in the Shire again. Uh, this week, so if you want to explore Tookland and the Stock Road and uh, uh, Woody End and Budgeford, I think we'll, we'll get as far as uh, Budgeford uh, this week. Then uh, we'll, uh, we'll 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 you should join me. So um, and the videos are up on YouTube. If you miss them, you can uh, you can you can see them after the fact. There again, it's a great way for you to sort of get a chance to see what the. Uh, you know what they've done in Lotro with the Lord of the Rings world. It's really interesting. So anyway, just wanted to to, to let you know that again. Again, the address there is Twitch.tv/LotroStream, all one word. Uh, that's the address. And again, it'll be Friday at 12:30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, again, Film Film is coming soon. Uh, the Silmarillion Film Project, which of course, in which I should clarify that we are not actually producing a movie. We are discussing how we would, in theory, produce a movie. I've, of course, explained this before, but I found after recent announcements that it needs to be said again and possibly can't be said quite uh, too many times. So, uh, so yes, uh, the Silmarillion Film Project is going to be awesome. I mean, it's a, way, uh, it's a way that I'm really excited about. A way of <clears throat> investing ourselves imaginatively in Tolkien's Silmarillion material, in his Legendarium, um, in sort of more in-depth and intimate ways than I know I ever have before. I'm really, really looking forward to it. So, anyway, <laughs> Brianna says, yeah, theory, sure, I'm not up to anything. Now, Brianna, you are welcome <laughs> to do what you like. I'm not going to produce a film, uh, because I can't do that. Um, but, um, uh, you know, other people can do stuff. Anyway. That I, I, I'm looking forward, Brandon, to seeing what you produce. So, anyway, I'm really looking forward to that. That is planned for next Friday, a week from this Friday at 9:30 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to do a sort of a special prime time opening episode. Our episodes are normally going to be in the same slot that Riddles in the Dark was in. Uh, that is on alternate Fridays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. But uh, this first episode we're going to do uh, in the evening time, and uh, I'm. Uh, kind of got my fingers crossed because I'm taking an airplane earlier that day uh, and I'm supposed to be home in time but uh, we, we will we will hope that that all works out anyway but film film next Friday night um, yeah so that's a week from this Friday it's getting close uh, it's going to be a lot of fun one last reminder um, if you're on the Council of the Wise 
If you're uh, a part of our nominating council for the Mythgard Academy, don't forget to nominate and discuss. Go to the, 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 the Moodle page, the Moodle discussion board, which you will have used before. Um, there are a whole bunch of nominations up there, which look really interesting. I have to say, um, our nominating council has had this like bizarre, uncanny ability to predict like my favorite books in the world. Um, so, and I don't just mean Tolkien, because that's kind of easy, but other things, you know, I, other things that the council has actually decided on and has be- have been elected. Books like Watership Down and Dune, some of my favorite books of all time. Um, and uh, uh, there's been this, like, unerring, and I'm not swaying it, I'm not, I, I, I try even to stay out of the nominating and voting process entirely, so I won't even tell you which of the books listed on uh, the nominate, you know, listed by the nominating council right now are the ones that are my favorite. But anyway, uh, there's some really good options there, but please do pitch into that conversation. We're going to be moving forward with the nominations uh, and into elections pretty soon, so uh, so don't forget about that. Okay, last time, we were looking at Buttercup as a kind of a case study, trying to answer the question. The question I kept asking was, you know, where are we? And it's a question I've had a really hard time sort of trying to figure out, and I'm finding myself kind of shifting around as to where I am, that is, how distant am I from the narrative? You know, are we being brought into this story? Are we being distanced from the story? Um, do we see sort of Goldman the narrator and Morgenstern, the theoretical Morgenstern, the storyteller, kind of pushing us in different ways there? How does this, how does this all work? How does the sort of the, the way that we're being asked to hold in suspension these two points of view the point of view of Morgenstern, the primary storyteller, and the point of view of Gold uh, uh, of Goldman, the narrator, um, who is uh, you know who is commenting on this and framing the whole thing for us. Um, how do we how do we see those interacting, and how do those impact our um, our understanding? You know, our, again, not just our understanding of the story, but our relationship to the story. Um, is you know are these ultimately do these things seem to serve as sort of an obstacle to our investment in this story? Or do we get invested in it anyway? And that's one of the main reasons I wanted to look at Buttercup last time, as, of course, Buttercup's story... Buttercup is, is in many ways, of course, a more, the, mo, the more central character of the two primary protagonists. Um, that is, you know, in the relationship between Wesley and Buttercup, it's not that Wesley isn't important, but, of course, we're not... <laughs> We're not drawn to him laughing because Nancy Fosberg says everybody wants to look at Buttercup. Uh, true, true. Um, but but uh, Buttercup, of course, is our primary narrative focus. Um, Wesley, of course, we come back to Wesley at various points, but it's really Buttercup whom the narrative follows, especially in the early half of the book. So, um, so I, you know, that's why I chose Buttercup to to look at as a because it's very pleasant to do so, Nancy. But um, but also because I think it gives us a really good way of seeing where are we in this book again vis a vis, especially vis a vis fairy tale and satire of fairy tale. Are we laughing at Buttercup or with Buttercup? Remember those are some of the questions that we were asking. Um, and I, th- I mean, my own sense of. You know my, the the conclusions that I drew looking at the passages that we looked at last time um, was that by and large it holds together pretty well. My sort of initial reaction was was more distant. I mean, I will admit, you know, when I when I my in my my first reread of this book, which I'm old enough now that when I reread books I haven't read in a long time, I'm like, hey, it's a brand new book. I barely remember it. Um, so um, yeah, when like the time it's been since you last read the book can be measured in decades. It's like a new world. Uh, but anyhow, um, 
So when I, you know, in my first reread of the book recently, I have to admit I did feel quite distant from Buttercup, and I wasn't really invested in her story much at all. Going through and looking more carefully, I found that it held together better than my initial thought was uh, on first reading. The tone's a little bit odd in places. Um, places are, of course, quite a bit over the top. I'm thinking, of course, in particular of Buttercup's declaration of love for Wesley, right? But even that... Um, Although it does invite us to laugh at Buttercup, the way that it kind of comes around from that, that that's not consistent. That is, the invitation to laugh at Buttercup is not consistent all the way through. We are invited, I think, to laugh at her there. But I think part of the effect of that is to sort of see how she does, in fact, change later on. Um, and, you know, and so, I, so again, I, I, was, I was fairly impressed by how consistent the characterization of Buttercup was um, consistent and therefore, in my mind, sort of investable. Uh, uh, but but there's uh, still that problem at the end, the passage that we were looking at at the very end of, uh, of class last time, um, particularly the, the, the business at the end of the fire swamp when Buttercup leaves Wesley behind. And... I still am left, after looking at that, with a really serious question. Where does that leave us? We were kind of constructing ways of reading that passage which would remain sympathetic to Buttercup, or which could be seen as consistent with Buttercup's emotional development as a character through the story to that point. But, um, of course, it's also possible that we're getting the rug pulled out from under us there. Right, that we have been sort of invited to invest in Buttercup, and this is the moment where either Goldman, the narrator, or Morgan Stern is basically saying, "Made you look right," and pulling the rug out from under us. And now we, we, we okay, actually, the investment, the emo- any emotional investment that we had in Buttercup has just been sort of undermined, and we discover that she's not the character that we thought that she was, and any kind of sympathy that we had built up with her could really fall to the ground. That, I think, is one, you know, one uh, one reading that fits with what we see in that passage. So I want to kind of suspend that a little bit, because in order to really try to make up our minds fairly about that question, um, we really need to kind of bring to it <clears throat> more data from the rest of the book, you know, and see where things go uh, uh, as we as we move along. We'll do that next time. Next time, I want to look at the resolution of Buttercup and Wesley's story, and more importantly, I want to look at where the frame brings us. In the in the last three chapters of the book, some really important stuff comes out from the from Goldman, the narrator, especially. Some of his interruptions are some of the most apparently earnest, passionate, significant interruptions that he that he gives all the way through, in which he's commenting most directly, both upon the story as Morgan Stern wrote it, and upon the story as he experienced it as a child in his father's reading, to the point where we actually, by the end of the story, build up this entire extra layer to some extent, right? We've got the story that Morgan Stern is writing, the, f- the, uh, the, the, the commentary and, 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 and uh, you know, the, the sort of external structure that the Goldman narrator has given us, um, but then we also have, kind of in between them, the oral version of the story that Goldman's father gave. 
right? We have also the barber's version of the story, um, which is clearly different, both in its point of view and in its content, both from what Morgenstern said and from what Goldman said. So we not only have Goldman commenting on Morgenstern's story, we have Goldman commenting on the barber, his dad's story, version of the story, which is itself an implicit commentary upon Morgenstern's story, right? So it gets even more complicated by adding that extra layer, and I think that's really fun. So we're going to look at that next time, too, uh, and think about that, of course, especially thinking about the ending of the story and where the ending of the story goes with all of these things um, with all of these things put together. Um, and again, you know, we won't be wanting to come back to that question, where are we as readers left in all of this? You know, what, at the end of the day, where are we being positioned? What are we being invited to sympathize with? What are we being invited to laugh at? Where does it, where does it really kind of, uh, kind of leave us? Yeah, Lynn says, and Goldman, the narrator, commenting on his own personal life. Yeah, we see those things coming in more and more, right? It's, it's easy, very easy, I would argue, uh, to get exasperated by the introduction, Right when the narrator's just going on and on for what seems like forever um, with his the story about his depressing life, um, but of course as we go through the story and we look at his comments and the way that he keeps injecting these personal references to that story, you know, that to that frame that he established at the beginning about his own uh, loveless marriage and fat child and everything else, um, you know, we we do Lynn begin to see the way in which the story is functioning and his own commentary upon the story is functioning in the context of that and it's all sort of connected together. And again, my question is, where exactly are are our sympathies being activated towards him personally? Where is he positioning us? How is that working? So we're going we're gonna to come back to all that stuff. That's what we're doing next time. It's not what we're doing tonight. Tonight, we're going to pause... This is the added class, by the way. I said last time I was going to add a class. We're going to do four classes on the book and then... Um, and then two uh, uh, two classes on the movie. Um, I, 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 before anyone even can ask, I'm adding one more week, um, and this is the week that we're at. Next week isn't the extra week. This is the extra week. Next week was where I was planning to do this week. I was going to do the Buttercup thing, and then we were going to go and talk about the end and the frame and all that stuff. But when it came to it, I just absolutely couldn't uh, 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 skip um, the... I realized that in follow in pursuing my original plan um, of focusing primarily, of course, on the story of the, you know the central story of Buttercup and Wesley, which seemed like an obvious thing to do at the time, um, that I would be, of course, missing the central true heroes of the whole story. Right? Um, you know the the two characters whose development is not compromised by the frame in almost any way. Um, the two in whom we are invited without question to invest, um, and at whom we are almost never invited to laugh. Um, the two characters whom Goldman, the frame writer, and Morgenstern, the storyteller, seem united in admiring and inviting us to admire, and whose story is the most, uh, gives us the most conventional fairy tale trajectory um, that we get anywhere in the story. And of course, this is Inigo and Fezzik. Right, and it's you know, this wonderful, delicious irony, right? That we it's uh, it's it's my favorite part of um, of this entire book. Not only because the two characters are, are 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 really, I think, quite wonderful in their way, but also I just I love the way that they are 
introduced and the way in which they come in and take over this story. I mean, the, we, we get the, the amazing irony of the fact that it's not just that they're lackeys, right? Which is what they are. We, we're introduced to them. They are lackeys of a minor character who plays one role in this story, which is to 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 kidnap the princess, right? I mean, they, 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 are a, they, are a, they are a plot device. No, they are a subset of a plot device. They are, a, they are, they are ancillary to a plot device. Vizini is the, fl- is the plot device, right? To kidnap the, the one who, kid- who kidnaps the princess in order to have her rescued, uh, you know, in order, hopefully, in Humperdinck's plan, um, to have her murdered and precipitate the war with Gilder. And, of course, in Morgenstern's plan, to uh, to to have her rescued by Wesley, but no. So they so they start off as lackeys, and again the the, the way in which they're like they're literally sideshow freaks. Like well, at least Fezzik at least was literally a sideshow freak uh, in that he was in a circus. Um, but uh, but you know the two of them are this like you know sort of extreme sort of stereo <clears throat> sort of stereotype. At least they appeal to kind of stereotypes, right? He's got the he's got the swordsman who's the greatest swordsman in the world, and he's got. Uh, he's got, you know, the giant, who's the greatest, biggest, strongest man in the world, um, you know, which seems almost completely, again, at first glance, would seem almost sort of dehumanizing, right? They're just sort of exaggerated lackeys, uh, who ser- whose role in the story, apparently, is are to be obstacles which the hero overcomes in the course of pursuing his quest, right? He's the, you've, you've got the hero who's coming to rescue uh, the, you know, his true love, and he's got to go through these two very formidable obstacles, right? The greatest swordsman, the greatest living swordsman in the world, and the strongest man, the strongest giant uh, who lives in the world. And, uh, and, and, th- and that's it, right? By the end of the story... <laughs> uh, things have completely switched around, right? At the end of the story, the quest of the putative hero, Wesley, to be reunited with his true love and to save her from the clutches of the evil prince and and uh, and intervene before his true love can be married to the evil prince, which is like the obvious central fairy tale plot, right? That becomes a mere accessory to Inigo's quest, right? Inigo's got to rescue. He's, he's got. He's got to no, rescue, not rescue. He's got to unrescue. He's got to murder uh, uh, Count Rugen, right? He's got to wreak his revenge. And Wesley becomes the instrument to make that happen, and and the actual reunion of Buttercup and Wesley, I mean, like it's pretty good, but it, I mean, it's relatively significant, um, but it's no longer really the focal point of the story. Um, the whole story gets kind of um, uh, gets 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 kind of hijacked by Fezzik and Inigo. Um, and it becomes, Lynn, exactly as you say, it becomes a buddy story. You know, it, be- it becomes, it's like a bromance between Fezzik and Inigo. And that's great! And it's awesome! Right? And I think that it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating element of this story. So in the end, I could not bear um, uh, not talking about them. So we're going to spend, today we're going to do nothing but talk about Inigo and Fezzik. Um, and to me, what's really fascinating when we look at this is when we look at, at the, first of all, at the, the individual journeys that Fezzik and Inigo as characters um, travel on in this story, and the, the really pretty intricate parallelism between their two stories. Um, of course, it's easy, 
in, in, in many places to sort of focus more on Inigo in that he's got the quest that moves things along, right? Fezzik, in the latter half of the story, seems on the one hand to just be kind of along for the ride, right? He's there just to help Inigo, right? You know, he's the one who pays for Miracle Max because he's the only one who has any money because the Brute Squad pays reasonably well, whereas Inigo has spent all of his money on Brandy. And, like, from that moment forward, right, when Inigo just asks, how much money do you have? And Fezzik automatically and without hesitation uh, gives him every penny that he has in order to to pay Miracle Max to resurrect the man in black uh, in order to go and... I mean, it's all about Inigo's quest, right? But I still think, when we look at it, the story doesn't really spotlight Inigo and leave Fezzik behind at all. We can see the two of them... um, we, We can see the two of them really continuing side by side in a really interesting parallel journey. So that's what I want to look at uh, today. Um, and we're going we're gonna to go back and forth between Inigo and Fezzik, um, this in part to guarantee that I don't get so carried away talking about one of them that I shortchange the other. Um, so let's look, at, let's look at where they start. Now, where we start with Inigo and Fezzik, as I said, first they seem like mere... Uh, sort of minor, uh, uh, freakish, even comical accessories to the plot. But right away, well, not okay, not quite right away. Soon after meeting them, we get this really queer, really clear, and quite remarkable uh, signal that there's something a little bit odd going on here, right? And of course, I'm referring to the two enormous narrative diversions that we get in order to give the family history and background, you know, in order to give the, 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 the origin stories of both Inigo and Fezzik. Um, and it's such a strange movement in the middle of that enormously long chapter, chapter five. Um, it's completely unexpected. Um, unexpected in the sense that there's there's no narrative justification for it. At least none that's obvious at the time. Especially since both of them fail. Right? Neither one of them dies, of course, but both of them are overcome by the man in black, and the man in black leaves both of them unconscious on the ground as he goes by, and then we follow him and depart Inigo and Fesca. And we have no reason to believe, again, imagining we've never seen the movie and don't know this book at all, when, when Wesley runs away from the unconscious body of Fezzik lying on the ground to go and meet Vizzini and overcome the final and third and final challenge uh, to his rescue of Buttercup, we have no reason to believe we will ever see them again. Why should we see them again, right? They were mere obstacles that were overcome by the hero. It doesn't make any sense. And therefore, it's the more odd that we got this really intimate uh, profile of each one and where they came from, right? Um, that by itself perhaps makes it um, makes it uh, uh, less surprising when we do come back to them, Right? Um, but, but anyway, it's, it's pretty notable. So there's a whole lot, you know, I mean, I I don't want to pretend that I'm capturing everything in the few passages that I've chosen and certainly feel free to refer to other bits that I haven't, that I'm not quoting from here. Um, but I tried to, um, I tried to point to passages that I thought kind of captured something about these, these particular moments. So, so, part one of our five-part investigation of the careers of Inigo and Fezzik is going to be a look at their childhoods. Both of them um, experience 
these sort of shattered childhoods, right? And I want to take a, a little peek at each one of those. So first, Inigo. We're going to do Inigo and Fezzik, because most of the time, that's the way they're talked about, right? We meet, uh, we fight Inigo first, then we fight Fezzik second. So that's why we're going to that's why we're going to do it. Um, yeah, interesting. Karita uh, points out that we are given a cue to care more about them as well, uh, because Wesley appreciates them uh, uh, and, and deliberately refra- refrains from killing them. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, that does seem kind of fitting. I mean, it would have been really bizarre. Like, the whole, like, let me give you his whole life story and kind of make you care about where he's coming from and what he's doing in his life. If, if Wesley actually killed the both of them, right? I mean, that would that would simply become... Uh, I, I, at that point, I would feel like my uh, my patience was being imposed upon by the author of the story, right? So you're right, Karita, that we can see a kind of nod to the investment, which I, I believe, uh, again, if we're sufficiently patient not to be frustrated by the digression from the central story, the sympathy that we've really built for these two characters already. And again, there's this kind of an acknowledgement, I think, of that in, in Wesley's own acknowledgement of them uh, and his apparent uh, respect for the two of them. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, Michael... Jaskowski says that it's sort of like Bilbo's uh, pity on Gollum, who ultimately becomes important to the quest in the end. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is kind of, it does come around kind of like that, right? Not exactly the same way, of course, but uh, uh, but yeah, I know it is, it is true. I mean, you think if if he had not had mercy on the two of them, as he, you know, he might, uh, arguably, it would have been more prudent to kill them both. And of course, it's the more ironic in that Wesley is the dread pirate Roberts who leaves no survivors, and yet here he was leaving survivors all over the place. But it turns out to have been a good thing, right? So, um, uh, yeah, yeah, Michael, I think that that's uh, that's kind of a fun uh, a fun parallel. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah King says killing them both would just be very George R.R. Morgenstern. Uh, you're totally right, Sarah. That would be an absolute uh, uh, Gurr-Martin move. Uh, here's 50 pages of backstory on this character, and now he's going to die. Um, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, um, yes, Arthur says, prepare to die unless pity stays my hand. Exactly. Um, yeah, Thomas Johnson, of course, points out that uh, the Sicilian, as he's very commonly called, the Sicilian's lack of a backstory portends his failure in the Iacane test. Uh, yeah, yeah, true, true. Um, okay, um, but let's 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 look at Inigo here now. Here, I want you to again, as 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 so often, I want you guys to be making observations, specific and concrete observations, if you can. Um, uh, certainly, anything that you see in this passage that really strikes you again. My the, my question here is, what are we learning about Inigo? There is some reason why we've digressed onto this. It's not a, a sheer and random digression, right? What are we learning about Inigo that's important here? What 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 are we given? that is foundational for Inigo's character um, in these early scenes. And if there, again, if there's something that you remember from the, the passage describing his childhood that, I, that doesn't make it into this one little brief quotation, feel free to make an observation about that too, right? And then we'll come back and we'll look at those observations and kind of bring them together. Inigo ran forward then, this is right after his father has been killed, standing in front of the nobleman's horse, blocking the nobleman's path. He raised the six-fingered sword with both his hands and cried, I, Inigo Montoya, do challenge you, coward, pig, killer, ass, fool, to battle. Get him out of my way. Move the infant. The infant is ten, and he stays, Inigo said. 
Enough of your family is dead for one day. Be content, said the noble. When you beg me for your breath, then I shall be contented. Now dismount. The nobleman dismounted. Draw your sword. The nobleman unsheathed his killing weapon. I dedicate your death to my father, Inigo said. Begin. They began. It was no match, of course. Inigo was disarmed in less than a minute. But for the first fifteen seconds or so, the noble was uneasy. During those fifteen seconds, strange thoughts crossed his mind. For even at the age of ten, Inigo's genius was there. Disarmed, Inigo stood very straight. He said not a word, begged nothing. What do we see? What are we given about Inigo here? One thing that I would point out, notice also how even the prose style here is different than we often get. We don't get any of those kind of inter... There are no parentheses, right? You know, there's no, this was, uh, uh, you know, this was before something. Or, you know, we don't, we don't get any of those comical asides. Um, Morgenstern's comical asides now, I mean. Um, you know, we get... There's nothing funny in the language of this description. You know, it might, that might be an obvious thing to say. Like, we're just talking about, like, a ten-year-old kid whose father's just been murdered in front of his eyes. Of course it's not funny, but that... Morgan Stern's prose has often been comic, even at serious times. Um, the only sentence in this whole passage that jumps out at me as being similar in tone to the kind of slightly sardonic, quite casual, conversational tone which Morgan Stern uses so often throughout the narration um, is, it was no match, of course. Other than that, he maintains a, uh, a a quite high dramatic register, which again I find comparatively unusual. Um, but more, let's let's see. Uh, hopefully, your observations are more concrete than mine. Um, Lee, yeah, I was noticing that, especially when I was reading it aloud. Uh, Lee Smith says, I like that Inigo gives orders and the nobleman obeys. Dismount. Draw your sword. Yeah, and notice again the, 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 the simplicity, the terseness of the narration there, right? The nobleman dismounted. The nobleman unsheathed his killing weapon. We only get the one little embroidery there at the end, which emphasizes what Inigo is potentially bringing on himself, right? The, the, the cost that he is prepared to pay. Um, it's really good, right? Um, and so, Lee, I, I love that, too. We see the sort of authority of Inigo at the age of ten. The nobleman, Count Rugen, could simply ride on, right? There's no reason why he would have to stay to chastise the Spanish brat, right? But he does. Um, and uh, And we see his brief, like his 15 seconds of respect for Inigo, right? His 15 seconds of uneasiness uh, is is kind of a reflection also of Inigo's authority, right? Um, of his authority, I'm not comfortable with that word, stature, right? Um, the, of the respect of which he is worthy. Um, anyway, yeah, it, it, I think that that's, uh, that's really 
That's really interesting. Arthur says at that time he wasn't even in the top 20 swordsmen. Uh, but see, Arthur, exactly. That's precisely the kind of thing that he doesn't say here, that he might have said in chapter 2 or chapter 1, right? I mean, that's that's exactly the tone I'm talking about. That's Morgenstern, right? Not 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 Goldman, the, the frame narrator. That's Morgenstern's prose when he's all like, uh, you know, at this point she was like number 8 and, 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 and climbing rapidly, right? That kind of wry comical tone, which was so frequent in the early chapters, is almost nowhere in evidence. Uh, in the, certainly, I mean, certainly in this passage. Now, again, I, I'm kind of cherry picking here. One could easily argue, but um, uh, but uh, but still, I think it's I think it's significance. I think it's significant. Um, good. Thomas Johnson adds, the only wit in the passage comes not from Morgenstern, but from Inigo himself. The infant is ten, and he stays. Right? Yeah, yeah. And even that is, is it's like a verbal parry, right? You know, we see him verbally fencing with the Count, right? Uh, you know, he, he's just, you know, received this, inf- this insult, and he knocks the insult aside and asserts himself. And it's right after that, that, as Lee points out, he, uh, he begins making commands, right? He, be, he begins delivering orders, which the Count obeys. Um, very good. And sorry, Rachel Draper was making the same point about Inigo's uh, 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 bossiness, which is, uh, which is, which is, which is really good. Um, good. Inigo, as Lee says, insists on not being dismissed as a mere child. And we see this, of course, both in his standing up to him um, and in his parry of the of the infant insult, but also in that assertiveness that he has and that insistence that, 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 that moving on to issue orders. He is not... Um, he is demanding to meet Count Rugen as an equal and duel him as an equal. And he actually induces Count Rugen to descend, f- descend both as nobleman to fight with commoner and of course, literally, physically descend from his horse uh, on uh, to, to 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 foot, um, in order to meet him as an equal. Okay, good, good. Um, very good. Lots of good observations. Um, Patrick says, "I love Inigo's five different insults for the nobleman here." Uh, yeah, yeah, um, and. I think not arbitrary, right? I, I, again, that strikes me as a t- as a moment when we might have heard, um, in a previous chapter, in a with a different character, we might have heard some of that kind of sardonic Morgenstern tone coming out, right? I mean, I think, for instance, of that moment uh, when the uh, the um, when Humberdinck is proposing to Buttercup, right, and he says, I am your prince, you cannot refuse, and she says, I am your subject, and I just did, right? Um, again, it works, but there's that, the, you see what I mean by that kind of wry tone, which kind of undermines the seriousness of the situation, right? It's, 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 it's inviting us to laugh at what would otherwise be a very dramatic moment. Recalling her grief and her resolution not to love, if it is exactly a resolution. Um, we talked about that some. Um, uh, and, you know, her willingness to die rather than, you know, compromise uh, herself for the prince. Um, you know, uh, but we, we're not given it as a moment of high drama, we're given it in that sort of sardonic and comical tone. Not here, 
right? Um, and Patrick, I think that all five, uh, all five of those, um, of those, of those adjectives are, uh, uh, perfectly true and applicable names. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Lee says two of them are, are farm animals, pig and ass, uh, that is bringing him down, uh, insulting his, his honor, his nobility, right? You are not high, you are, you are not above commoners, you are below them. Um, two are fighting words, impugning uh, his character, impugning his honor, calling him coward and fool, and one is simply uh, uh, deadly accurate, uh, calling him a killer, as he just murdered his father. Uh, it's, very, it's, it's a very good breakdown, Lee. Um, uh, good, good. Um, Kate Neville points out, I've always found it interesting that Inigo has been able to use the six-fingered sword as if it were made for him. Um, yeah, Kate, I agree. Uh, on the one hand, the six-fingered sword is the most magnificent sword ever made. It is the masterwork of Domingo Montoya, who is the greatest sword maker ever, but... It was designed specifically in order to counteract the natural disadvantage. Now, remember all that talk that Domingo does about how, um, you know, for a master swordsman, like the slight off balance that would that a normal sword, which wasn't specifically designed for a six-fingered man, would be would be very significant, right? So here's Inigo, a conspicuously five-fingered man who's been fighting with this sword designed to counteract those imbalances, which presumably therefore create new imbalances for Inigo since it was designed for Count Rugen, um, and yet he's managed to become, you know, the wizard of fencing, uh, despite that. It's almost like fighting left-handed, right? Though, of course, it's also like the Sword of Destiny, obviously, um, and the last and greatest sword of his father, so it's obviously, you know, the legacy from his father and all that kind of thing. But, Kate, I think you're right uh, to point to that factor, which certainly the narrative draws enough attention to that we shouldn't utterly forget it. Um... Good, good. Um, oh, interesting. Michael Chaskowski, Lee, he, he's, uh, you said this at almost exactly the same time, uh, and uh, uh, Michael points out even further um, that uh, the insults not only are distributed, Lee, in the way that you describe, but they're chiastic, right? That is, they're, they're symmetrical. Coward and fool on the outside, pig and ass uh, inside those and killer uh, as this sort of central point right in the middle. That's a, that's a, it's it's beautiful. That's that that's 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 a beautiful observation. Um, okay, good. Um, yeah, good. Mary Rose points out, of course, every time the sword is mentioned, it's called the the, the six fingered sword. So we're never really allowed to forget that it was designed with that kind of peculiarity. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, All right, good. So, let's, uh, I want to move on because we got to get through Inigo and Fezzik tonight because uh, uh, there's going to be plenty to talk about next time. Okay, so here's where Inigo begins, and this is the first kind of glimpse that we get of Inigo, and I think this establishes a really interesting foundation for him for the, for the strength, uh, you know, the strength, the nobility of his character, um, and of course sort of framed within this absolutely shattering moment of his childhood when he loses his father under these terrible circumstances and dedicates his, you know, dedicates his entire life to trying to find justice for that. How about Fezzik? Fezzik also has a shattered childhood, but it's shattered in a different way. 
This is in the context of his parents training him for his first fight ever, when they decide to take their nine-year-old son, who looks like he's twenty, and is uh, and they're going to uh, enroll him in the professional in professional fighting uh, in uh, uh, in Turkey, uh, where they where, where 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 they're from. And the previous paragraph has just said that Fezzik's father and mother have never been more happy, right? As the, she is uh, overseeing his diet, uh, and the father, the mother's overseeing his diet, and his father's overseeing his training, and uh, and and everybody's uh, everybody's really really happy. Fezzik had never been more miserable. He was scared and frightened and terrified, all rolled into one. No matter how they reassured him, he refused to enter the <clears throat> the arena. Sorry. Catching my throat. I'm not getting choked up yet. Because he knew something. Even though outside he looked twenty, his mustache was already coming along nicely. Inside he was still this nine-year-old who liked rhyming things. No, he said. I won't. I won't and you can't make me. After all we've slaved for these three years, his father said. His jaw was almost as good as new now. He'll hurt me, Fezzik said. Life is pain, his mother said. Anybody that says different is selling something. Um, skipping a little bit, uh, just because I wanted to fit it on the slide. Um, the bit that I skipped is Fezzik talking about how he's afraid he's gonna he's gonna screw it up and he's gonna forget all the moves and uh, uh, and he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna do it wrong, and that he refuses to go. Listen, we're not going to threaten you, Fezzik's parents said more or less together. We all care for each other too much to pull any of that stuff. If you don't want to fight, nobody's going to force you. We'll just leave you alone forever. Fezzik's picture of hell was being alone forever. He told them that when he was five. They marched into the arena then to face the champion of Sandigi. <laughs> Arthur asks, does anyone in this book have nice parents? Well, Humperdinck's parents aren't awful. I mean, he's got an evil stepmother, I suppose, so I guess that disqualifies Humperdinck, really. Uh, I mean, even though she doesn't appear to be very actively evil, but I, uh, um, uh, I, I love that he calls her that. Um, Inigo, of course, does have, uh, but right, Arthur was saying other than Inigo, right? Yeah, we have, we have, we have that, of course. Um, yeah. Now, Kate Neville, of course, is struck by the contrast uh, between Fezzik's parents threatening to leave him. Uh, whereas Inigo's father is taken from him, they are bound by loss of par- that is Inigo and Fezzik are bound by loss of parental love, and the fear of the reality. Of course, Fezzik's appar- parents eventually do die, um, but this threat is worse than the actual loss. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Um, yeah, Thomas Johnson points out that fairy tales often feature portraits of parents inflicting outrageous physical and psychological abuse on their children. Certainly, Drucker, Hansel, and Gretel come to mind. Um, the sort of passive-aggressive psychological abuse Fezzik's parents inflict on him is a more realistic version of that, even as his physical situation is ridiculous. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, now, on the ridiculous point, notice how those those sort of uh, that 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 kind of ridiculous narrative tone creeps back in here again. Um, uh, his mustache was coming along ni- was already coming along nicely, right? Um, uh, his jaw was almost as good as new now, right? There are these, these moments where um, we're 
we're kind of, again, we're being invited to laugh, but um, but still, it's not uh, it's not the same, right? The effect of this is still very moving. I mean, I can come away from the description of Buttercup's grief after West, after Wesley's apparent death, his first apparent death. Um, I can come away from that not as, at least I did come away from that not especially moved. I found it a little bit more moving when we went back and looked at it more carefully in class last time. Um, but you know, like it, it, it wasn't. It's not like it really gripped me. Both Fessick and Inigo are really gripping. Um, the 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 suffering that the two of them have that we see from their childhood. The one uh, in you know the loss of what seemed a very loving though somewhat eccentric parent. Um, and the and Fezzik's horrible treatment by his family, and his clear desire. Um, his clear desire just to be loved and to be accepted um, by his by his parents and not to be left alone. Um, yeah, good. Brianna points out that Fezzik's parents' death is just a side note in the text, especially compared to Inigo's father. Right, it is conspicuous uh, in the in the in the contrast uh, with that. Um, yeah, good, good. Excellent. Kate points out that all the descriptions of Fezzik as a child are only indicators of the ways in which others laughed at him, which make us feel for him. Yes, so even in the ways in which the sort of sardonic comments by Morgan Stern, the author, uh, invite laughter, it is almost imitative laughter in that way, right? It's, it becomes even more horrible in as much as we begin to be invited to laugh at Fezzik. That is, it's never that he becomes a genuine laughingstock, but it's almost as if Morgan Stern is showing us how and why people always laughed at Fezzik so that we can have a kind of intuitive understanding of the mockery of Fezzik, even though I don't think, as readers, we are put in a position to want to laugh at him at all. Um, and good, Philip Lord adds that Fezzik himself seems to look at himself through the eyes of others as well, so it's sort of natural that we would be introduced to him uh, in that way. Um, Sarah King asks, do I find this more moving because Fezzik and Inigo are children, or is Buttercup herself or her situation inherently less sympathetic? Um, That's a good question. In part, I think the increased sympathy is the fact that we are seeing the suffering of two children, both of whom are ultimately left alone in the world. Um, Whereas Buttercup doesn't have that. Um, She didn't exactly have a happy home, but her parents are both physically there and even, in a sense, emotionally there. I mean, they're the fact that they care about her uh, and are tender towards her is pretty clear, I think, in the scene after, you know, when she comes back out after mourning for Wesley for three days. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, Sarah, I want to I think about this a little bit more. Um, I'm trying to see if I can identify... If, if there is anything other than just the fact that it's that it's a child, I think 
Well, okay. I was going to say a second reason is kind of the same reason, or at least maybe sort of a subset of it, but maybe it clarifies a bit. With Buttercup, I sympathize with her for the loss of Wesley, on the one hand. Um... But on the other hand, I was never really deeply impressed by their relationship to start with. That is, her declaration of love is so comical and seems and so over the top. Um, you know, her whole, like, oh, did I say I loved you 15 minutes ago? My love for you now is so much more than it was 15 minutes ago. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I hear you, and I'm less than 100% convinced that you love him truly now, right? This is, you know, it sounds like a wild infatuation. They never get to, you know, they never, they never go. Then he leaves immediately the next day. Their relationship never progresses other than sending letters, which sound equally sappy uh, and juvenile. And so, you know, do I feel like, oh, she has been left alone and has lost her true love? Like, in theory, yes, but I'm still not. It's like sad and everything, but, um, I would be sadder, you know, if we were looking... I mean, I would be sadder if, like, Miracle Max died and, and Valerie was left alone, right? That I would find sadder than uh, than than Wesley dying at that stage in the story um, when their relationship is so shallow still. Um, and then things that happen to her afterwards are in large part tied up with her own choice. She chooses to marry Humperdinck. Yes, he said he would kill her if she didn't. But, uh, but, but still, I mean, she makes choices there. She makes choices that... These children, Fezzik and Inigo, they have no choice in their situation. And part of that, as I said, is not really a second reason, but just part of the fact that they're, that they're children. But they have these miseries just absolutely thrust upon them. And the death of parents, both the death of, a pa- of, of, of parents and the mistreatment by parents, um, are, in, su- in my mind, just in such a different category of sort of emotional gravity than... I have lost the love that I have had for several hours and I now think is like the most transcendental experience in the world. A much harder time really kind of, uh, kind of buying that. Um, but, um, anyway, anyway, um, okay, Sarah, confession time. I'm wondering, I just had a doubt creep in. Am I biased against... Am I emotionally biased against Buttercup because she's so beautiful? It's harder to feel sympathy for beautiful rich, beautiful and or rich people, right? Um, in fact, it's always sort of tempting to take a vicarious and envious satisfaction when bad things happen to them. That's a disgusting thing to feel, of course, but it happens, right? Um, I wonder if... Buttercup's beauty itself and all of the emphasis on where she is in the rankings also distances me from her emotionally in that way too. It's like, oh, the most beautiful woman in the world like lost the guy she had a crush on. Oh gosh, I wonder if she'll be okay. Right? I mean, it, that's obviously cold and horrible and but 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 you see what I mean? There's like at least a bit of that, I think, in there. Whereas again, with Inigo and Fezzik, no way. Um <laughs> Brianna says, is this why I'm less sympathetic for Turin Turambar? He is the hottest human man ever to live. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's not quite the same, <laughs> but a perfectly fair question. Um, anyway, anyway, okay. Uh, uh, 
let's move on. Okay, so so first, my first little snapshot uh, of the parallel structure of their careers is the shattered childhoods uh, of our two heroes. Um, the second is the crossroads, uh, the crossroads in their lives, right? The turning point of their careers, which is their meeting with the man in black. Here's Inigo before they fight. Please, Inigo thought. It has been so long since I have been tested. Let this man test me. Let him be a glorious swordsman. Let him be both quick and fast, smart and strong. Give him a matchless mind for tactics, a background the equal of mine. Please, please, it's been so long. Let him be a master. I have my breath back now, the man in black said from the rock. Thank you for allowing me my rest. We'd best get on with it then, Inigo replied. The man in black stood. "'You seem a decent fellow,' Inigo said. "'I hate to kill you.' "'You seem a decent fellow,' answered the man in black. "'I hate to die.' "'But one of us must,' Inigo said. "'Begin.' Um, "'What do we see here? "'What do we see here?' "'Right, exactly, Philip. "'His prayers are answered, right? "'This is not the first time Inigo's prayers "'are going to be answered. Um, "'It's almost like his story uh, "'goes towards a happy ending. "'Now, of course,' It's denied. It, it, it is. He cannot have a truly happy ending under his circumstances. But, um, um, but, uh, but more. What do we see here? Um, yeah, yeah. Hang on to those thoughts. Kate is trying to squeeze in thoughts about the end of with Buttercup and Wesley. Wait for it. Hold those thoughts. Come back to those stuff next week. I want you to. I want you to say those things again next week. Um, Yeah, good, good. Um, We see Inigo's integrity. He really is a decent fellow. Yes, good. This is not, you know, in as much as he's introduced to us as the lackey whose job it is to dispatch this guy who's chasing them, um, we see this, we do see that he has integrity. Even, you know, it's funny, you know, when he helps Wesley up the cliff just because he's impatient and hates waiting. Um, But, uh, but, but even you know even there you think of the you know the 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 very amusing conversation between Wesley and you know the the that does put a damper on our, on our relationship. Um, I love, by the way, uh, and actually, <coughs> I think that this is a significant thing, which we'll come back to in a couple of weeks. Notice how many lines from the Inigo and Fezic sections of the book are carried over directly into the movie screenplay, whereas that is true a much smaller percentage of the time with Wesley and Buttercup's dialogue. Just an interesting little thought. Toss that out there, we'll come back to it later uh, when we talk about the movie. But anyhow, um, so we do see integrity on Inigo's part, um, but of course, this also shows us something about, about him, about him himself, right? Um, that is to say, yes, he he's he's interested in fair play. Yes, he he would like, uh, uh, you know, he wants to give the man in black a fair shot. He's not just going. He's not he's not a murderer, right? Yes, we we do see all of those things, but we also see him desiring to. All right, well, this is such a corny way to talk about it, but to sort of find himself, right? I mean, he's... he wants to be challenged. He he is... 
been, we've been told, in a pattern of discontentment. He's, he's for a while, barely even practiced, uh, at least before he uh, uh, hooked up with Vizzini again. He was, he was on this downward spiral uh, of drinking himself to death and, 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 and almost giving up sort of because he was bored. Um, because nobody ever challenged him. He wants, um, but he wants to keep getting better. He wants to continue refining his craft. So his one prayer is, let him be a true master. Let him have a background equal of mine. Let this be a real fight, not just an easy me dispatching the guy uh, who's chasing us. Um, yeah, Karita, he's bored with being the best. Um, he achieves in his early training... The rank, you know, Yest tells him he's achieved the rank of wizard, right? He's the only, the only living wizard of, 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 of swordplay, you know, since the Corsican wizard died at sea. I wonder if the Dread Pirate Roberts killed him. Or if maybe he became the Dread Pirate Roberts. But anyway, um, the, 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 uh, are we told the Corsican? Right now, you know, we are. And I don't think he was the, the Dread Pirate Roberts. Anyway, point is, it would seem as if he's already reached sort of the apex of his career very early, right? Um, but that's clearly, not, you know, he's not content with that. He doesn't want to stay there, and he doesn't want, because he knows that just sort of being there and staying there sort of leads to that, you know, that, that brandy-fogged decline that he was in before with Fasini. So it's interesting to see him searching here, not only searching, of course, for the six-fingered man, so that he might kill so that he might kill him, but searching for some some challenge, some improvement, some movement of himself, not just be just to go at the top and stay there. Um, he's beaten by the man in black, but he's not crushed by that fact. Um, he's you know, he reconsiders some things afterwards. But it's not like he's going to go off and kill himself because now everything is... And I've been proven... You can see, I think, even in his words here, almost a desire that he would lose. Right? Almost a desire that he would find somebody that would be better than him. Um, Notice how also we find um, somebody who... That is, we find foreshadowing of what we're going to see later on. Right? His prayer... Let him be both quick and fast, smart and strong. Give him a, ma- a matchless mind for tactics, right? Well, it's exactly the it's 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 Wesley's matchless mind for tactics that Inigo I- is seeking later on, right? To help him in his storming of the castle uh, to kill Count Rugen. Um, so we see, of course, his prayer very specifically answered, um, but of course answered in a way that he himself doesn't anticipate. Um, I think that's really. Uh, I think that that's really that's really cool. Um, all right, where's Fezzik? Fezzik, of course, wants to be sportsmanlike. Doesn't want to just kill the man in black from hiding, as Vizzini tells him to do. They stood facing each other on the narrow mountain path. Now, what happens? Asked the man in black. We face each other as God intended. Fezzik said. I can't. Of course, it's really hard not to read Fezzik and Andre the Giant's voice, but I can't possibly imitate Andre the Giant's voice, so I won't try. Um, uh, no tricks, no weapons, skill against skill alone. You mean you'll put down your rock, and I'll put down my sword, and we'll try to kill each other like civilized people, is that it? If you'd rather, I can kill you now, Fezzik said gently, and he raised the rock to throw. I'm giving you a chance. So you are, and I accept it, said the man in black and he began to take off his sword and scabbard. Although, frankly, I think the odds are slightly in your favor at hand-fighting. 
I tell you what I tell everybody, Fezzik explained. I cannot help being the biggest and strongest. It's not my fault. I'm not blaming you, said the man in black. I find this passage really poignant. Poignant. I mean, of course, on the one hand, it's it's a comical exchange, right? But again, I, I find the stuff that I see going on in this passage I, is the kind of stuff I see going on in Inigo and Fezzik passages so much more than in Buttercup and Wesley passages. That is, the ways in which so many of these lines have double meanings, right? And even though this is sort of on the surface, a kind of, you know, badinage between uh, the man in black and Fezzik the giant, um, there's all of these, of these, I think, really heavy undertones. Um... Uh, for instance, um, if you'd rather I can kill you now, Fezzik said gently, right? Um, the gentleness of Fezzik's words. Like, he's really, it's almost like he's, he's, he's offering, it might hurt you less for me just to dispatch you with a rock right here. Bam, you probably won't feel it. Um, so if you'd rather... I just kill you now. Uh, I'm willing. So even so, that for, you know, when he says I'm giving you a chance, it's almost like that has two meanings, right? I'm, on the one hand, I'm giving you a chance to fight fairly, but also, I'm also giving you the chance to die quickly, right? If you'd prefer, uh, because he's gentle, because he really cares. He doesn't like hurting people, and he doesn't want to hurt Wesley. Um, as Sarah Powell says, it's hard to know whose side we're supposed to be on uh, in uh, in these fights. And and I, in my view, especially with Fesic, Inigo at least was wanting the fight, right? Um, and so when they fight, it's a happy thing, right? And even in in a sense, when Inigo is overcome, even that's kind of a happy thing. Like it's not the top of the mountain; you still have somewhere to go. There's still meaning in your life, right? It's 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 a it's a it's a good loss for Inigo, right? With Fezzik, it's less clear, right? On the one hand, I mean, it's still kind of a good loss for Fezzik in the sense that he didn't have to dismember somebody that he didn't want to dismember. Um, it's like he's finally gotten out of a fight. Um, he often kind of wished that he could lose earlier on in his career, but he never could. You know, it just never worked out that he lost a fight. Um, so... That's also kind of a relief to him. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to kill anybody. Um, but uh, uh, but but more, especially moving. I find I'm talking about sort of the double meanings that I was suggesting. Um, Fezzik's comment at the end. I tell you what I tell everybody. I cannot help being the biggest and strongest. It's not my fault. You can do that as a really jocular line, right? I can't help being the biggest and strongest. It's not my fault, right? You could do it that way. You could you could hear it that way. But you can also hear that, I think, really movingly, right? I mean, that that can be a really pathetic line in the classical sense, that is, a line containing much pathos. He can't help being the biggest and the strongest. All his life, he's wanted to help being the biggest and strongest. He's been victimized by being born so big and strong when he did not want to be so big and strong. He just wanted to be a little boy who could make rhymes, Right, and instead he was made into a professional fighter uh, at the age of nine. Right, it's not my fault. It's like being the biggest and strongest is something that he's been being punished for his whole life. And here the man in black says, "I'm not blaming you." Right, it's like again, this isn't the surface meaning 
of this exchange, right? But like the 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 sort of the double meaning of these words, it's almost like he, he the man in black, this mysterious figure who's the protagonist of for who in whose path Fezzik is supposed to be an obstacle, is extending a word. I mean, again, you, you know, you can say I'm not blaming you, right? Um, again, just sort of batting aside the that that particular piece of badinage, but that there's an implicit, almost an implicit sympathy there. Again. The double meaning is an implicit sympathy, which he never received, even from his own parents, right? Um, and that's kind of beautiful. That's kind of lovely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thomas Johnson says, Wesley sounds like a therapist there. I'm not blaming you, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um yeah, Mary Rose says that uh, with Fezzik's mentality, gentleness, uh, uh, yeah, that is to say gentleness, his strength is highlighted as a, as a, as a disability, right? Yeah, almost, to, to him, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very good. Uh, yeah, excellent. Um, so again, notice what happens here. Again, for both of them, in this moment, you know, when they come to this crossroads in their career and their meeting of the man of black, man in black, uh, both of them, but they don't get exactly their heart's desire. Um, that is, it's not like they find the end of their quest, but you know, if you want to look at this as, like, a journey for discovering their true identity or, you know, whatever, for, like, getting in touch with themselves, this is a turning point for both of them, right? Both of them get what they were looking for. Inigo gets a challenge that he can't overcome, right? His life has meaning again and is not worthless and pointless and boring. Fezzik uh, gets what he always wanted. He loses uh, so that uh, he, he is not being booed by the crowds, uh, and he doesn't have to hurt and kill Wesley, which he doesn't want to do. Um, but, you know, he's not going to disobey Fazzini either. Um, okay. Uh, then our next stage in the careers uh, uh, of our two heroes um, is what I call the pit of despair. Uh, that is what happens to both of them. When we return to both of them, in some ways, unexpectedly, uh, after they wake up from the unconsciousness in which Wesley leaves them, what happens to the two of them? And both of them here uh, descend into their lowest moments. Here's uh, Inigo first. Inigo moved panicked up the dark streets, desperately afraid. Why his giant fear? What was he afraid of? He sat on a filthy stoop and pondered. Around him there were cries in the night, and from the alehouses, vulgar laughter. He was afraid, he realized then, because as he sat there, gripping the six-fingered sword for confidence, he was suddenly back to what he had been before Vizzini had found him. A failure. A man without point, with no attachment to tomorrow. Inigo had not touched brandy in years. Now he felt his fingers fumbling for money. Now he heard his footsteps running toward the nearest alehouse. Now he saw his money on the counter. Now he felt the brandy bottle in his hands. Back to the stoop he ran. He opened the bottle. He smelled the rough brandy. He took a sip. 
He coughed. He took a swallow. He coughed again. He gulped it down and coughed and gulped some more and half began a smile. His fears were starting to leave him. Again, notice none of that sardonic tone, right? We're not invited to laugh anywhere here, right? We get this earnest, detailed description of his situation. We get that really fascinating narrative shift, right, where he, uh, where we get him in this, like, you know, the, almost this passive... It's not exactly... It's, grammatically, it's not the passive voice, but it's like the passive voice, right? He's not doing anything. He feels his fingers fumbling for money. He hears his footsteps running. He sees his money on the counter. He feels the brandy bottle in his hands. We don't see him, too. We see these things sort of happening. He observes these things happening around him, right? There's this sense of inevitability. He can't... Having been, you know, feeling that he is a failure, that he is has no attachment to tomorrow... He's uh, he's back, you know, down in this 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 sort of lowest place, and the horrible irony of that last line: his fears were starting to leave him, right? Um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, because he's he's uh, he's drunk himself to insensibility, as Tom Hillman says, he's lost himself there. Yeah, and as he succeeds in getting himself lost, he ceases to be afraid, and his ceasing to be afraid is sort of the most horrible, the most pitiable thing uh, that happens to him here. Um, yeah, good. Both Kate and uh, Kate Neville and Philip Lord are both saying it's a it's it's a it's a touching description of alcohol of, of of addiction of alcoholism. Really, um, it's very it's it's very human. There's nothing there's nothing uh, funny about this at all. How about Fezzik? When Fezzik reached the cliffs of insanity, he said, Inigo, Inigo, here I am, to the rocks. First of all, can I confess that I'm cheating here? Um, one thing that I want to point out even before I begin, notice how uh, Fezzik, when the narrator gives us Fezzik's internal monologue, Fezzik's internal monologue, or like the, you know, when the description is following Fezzik really closely, it's like run on sentence heaven, right? I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. The sentences are, are, are interminable. Um, so I've cheated. I'm actually joining the sentence midway. It's like more, more than halfway through the sentence already when I started. But again, I wanted to fit it on the slide. When Fezzik reached the cliffs of insanity, he said, Inigo, Inigo, here I am to the rocks, and I'm here, Inigo. It's your Fezzik to the trees, and Inigo, Inigo, answer me, please! All over until there was no other conclusion to draw, but that just as there was now no Vizzini, so there was also no Inigo, and that was hard. It was, in point of fact, too hard for Fezzik, so he began to run, crying out, Be with you in a minute, Inigo, and right behind you, Inigo, and hey, Inigo, wait up! Wait up, straight up, which was the way he ran, and wouldn't be, and wouldn't there be fun with rhymes once he and Inigo were together again? But after an hour or so of shouting, his throat gave out, because he had, after all, been strangled almost to death in the very recent past. On he ran, on and on and on, until finally he reached a tiny village and found, just outside town, some nice rocks that formed a kind of cave, almost big enough for him to stretch out in. He sat with his back against a rock, and his hands around his knees, and his throat hurting, until the village boys found him. And then, of course, we get the touching and horrible description of the village boys slowly 
initially being afraid and slowly building up their confidence until they start jeering at him and yelling at him, and then that terrible, terrible last line, at least they weren't throwing rocks yet. Right? Fezzik, too, goes back to his lowest point. Right? Fezzik is alone, and being left alone is the worst thing. That is, that's his version of hell. Um, Carita, I agree. It's your Fezzik is so, so sad. Um, it is so touching. Um, the, the warmth and kindness and gentleness of Fezzik's character, this sort of, this kind of unreserve, the completeness of his devotion to his friend, the, 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 the completely unselfconscious, um, uh, uh, care and love and dependence upon his friend uh, is just is so charming in Fezzik. And again, like, I just... I can't help but find both Wesley and Buttercup cold fishes in comparison to Fezzik and to Inigo, but especially to Fezzik. Um, good. Alyssa uh, points out, I love how the cliffs of insanity are functioning as a metaphor when, Fez- when Fezzik is almost going mad. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, he's reaching the cliffs of insanity in a metaphorical as well as a literal sense. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Philip Lord says, Inigo and Fezzik are in a figurative pit of despair, while Leslie is liter- Wesley is literally in a pit of despair. Absolutely. It's not called the pit of despair in the book. Uh, it's called the zoo of death. But still, no, you're right. I mean, he is in a cage at his lowest point, pres- presumably. Um, we know less about Wesley's life than we know about Fezzik and Inigo's life, so it's hard to tell. But, you know, uh, I think uh, uh, it's, it's uh, fair to say that that moment... Um, you know, when he's in the cage in the zoo of death, uh, is probably Wesley's lowest point. Um, but, but again, like, I don't know. I care so much more about Fezzik and Inigo. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, v- good. Ian Blaylock points out that Fezzik completely demolishes the giant stereotypes of fairy tales. Um, and he's a well-rounded character, too. Yeah, absolutely. There are always giants in fairy tales. Not always, but there are many giants in fairy tales, right? Um, and Fezzik is, comp- is... But again, notice the departure. And the departure is of a very different kind. Then, you know, we get the playing with, you know, the true love conventions and, and uh, you know, the, those times when we were invited to laugh at Buttercup and Wesley at the beginning and stuff. Um which, which again, looks like a kind of a send up of the, you know, sort of the true love tropes of 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 fairy tale stories. We don't get that kind of treatment with Fezzik. Um, it is a reversal. It can be taken in that sense satirically, um, as as a fairy tale satire, um, that is to say. But um, but gosh, it certainly doesn't feel anything like. Um, that kind of, I keep using the word sardonic because, for tonight anyway, that's my word to try to describe Morgan Stern's tone, um, especially as he deals uh, with with Buttercup and Wesley, and in particular in those early chapters. Um, okay, so this is stage three. So we have their shattered childhoods, uh, the crossroads, the turning points of their career, the, uh, the 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 pit of despair. Then we have. 
them emerging from the pit of despair um, and them coming themselves from the pit of the, the from the pit of despair and the time that I w- would point to as being the times that I, that I would point to as being especially important uh, for them even though they've already kind of pulled them so they find each other which is of course the really important thing um, that's that's the sort of the real turning point when both of them begin to get their lives back together um, uh, of course Inigo very graphically um, as he's being uh, as he's being sobered up by Fezzik again the tender ministrations of Fezzik um, uh, to for for his friend but um the moment that I really wanted to wanted to isolate is when they face their fears as they are descending into the zoo of death. Um, the terror that they experience, the way in which the trip of, of Inigo and Vesic into the zoo of death is treated as... It's hard for me not to read that as a kind of metaphor, or at least as a parallel to the trajectory of their characters, right? They have, you know, descended down into darkness, um, but now they are, they're going, I mean, it's like a descent into the underworld motif, right, from the epic tradition. Almost, Tom, it's not quite the same, right? I'm appealing to Tom Hillman, our resident classicist. But, um, but anyway, it's, it's like that. Um, and they're facing the darkness, and they're facing their... There's so much emphasis on their fears and their terror. Um, and yet both of them confront their fears uh, and emerge from there with a, a kind of... And again, here I, I end up sounding really... Uh, probably very Columbia academic again, um, but you know they emerge with a with sort of a clearer sense of themselves. Um, in as much as we can see the trajectory of their own sort of understanding of themselves, you know, of their own, uh, you know, the evolution of their own identities and their own understanding of those things, those moments on the stairs uh, in the Zoo of Death strike me as really important. Here's uh, Inigo fighting the bats when he takes charge and decides that he's not going to let them die in the dark as Fezzik is completely incapacitated uh, by his fear of the king bats. Apparently, uh, uh, in Turkey, here come the king bats being the most terrifying phrase uh, that anyone can utter. The sword was heavy now. Three dead beasts changed the balance, and Inigo wanted to clear the weapon. But now another flutter, a single one, and no veering this time, straight and deadly for his face, and he ducked and was lucky. The sword moved up and into the heart of the lethal thing, and now there were four skewered on the sword of legend, and Inigo knew that he was not about to lose this fight, and from his throat came the words, I am Inigo Montoya, and still the wizard, come for me! And when he heard three of them fluttering, he wished he had been just a bit more modest, but it was too late for that, so he needed surprise, and he took it, shifting position against the beasts, standing straight, taking their dives long before they expected it, and now there were seven king bats, and his sword was completely out of balance, and that would have been a bad thing, a dangerous thing, except for one important aspect. There was silence now in the darkness. The fluttering was done. Notice that this passage is exactly two sentences long. The fluttering was done is sentence two, and the entire rest of the passage is sentence number one. Um, exactly, Kate. It runs on in the same way that physics uh, so often do. This is in part a technique to show the rapid pace of the action, the sort of breathless moment uh, of Inigo trying to fight the bats. Um, 
good case. We see how the two of them have strengths that help the other. We see each one of them incapacitated and the other one being able to rescue him. And again, in this moment, Inigo asserting himself. He is briefly overcome with terror. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And then he remembers his training, right? And he recalls McPherson, the cranky Scott, uh, who trained him, um, you know, and all the different training that he gave and the training that he got for fighting blind uh, and, uh, you know, decides to, you know, that he needs to be who he is, be who he's been trained to be, until finally he declares, I am Inigo Montoya, and still the wizard. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, <laughs> Mary Rose says he wishes he was a bit more modest while challenging the creatures. Uh, yeah, exactly. Now, that is a moment. Notice we are, we do get a couple moments that I would qualify as, uh, as, um, that the you know the the things I've been saying are not present in Inigo's uh, passages so far. We do get a couple moments here where Morgan Stern is being funny, right? Where he's making the sort of sardonic comments at the expense of the character. That's one of them, right? Um, uh, uh, he wished he had been just a bit more modest, but it was too late for that, so he needed surprise and he took it. Um, you know, that's a little kind of uh, detour, little comical detour from <clears throat> in the middle of that. Uh, um, of that, uh, 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 of that long thing, of that, of that long, uh, you know, otherwise sort of dramatic and quite literally breathless dis- description. Um, yeah, good, good. Yeah, uh, Nancy says that in the sword full of skewered bats. <laughs> yes, uh, <clears throat> that, uh, that is a little bit funny. The visual image, ironically, the visual image that we're being given in the complete darkness, um, but um, good. Kate says that might, she asks, might we conclude that they are lending emotional strengths as well? Inigo is becoming more emotional, like Fezzik, whereas Fezzik becomes more calculating, like Inigo. Um, I'm thinking of his finding the horses. Yeah, at the end we'll see him sort of being more calculating, like Inigo. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Um, Michael uh, Cheskowski says the long sentences. Uh, that we get, you know, in these passages are almost precisely the opposite of the parenthetical interruptions we saw earlier in the book. I agree, Michael. I I, I assume you mean opposite in the sense of their effect on us, right? With the interruptions uh, disrupting our investment in what's going on, and and remember Goldman, the frame writer's own the frame narrator's own interpretation of the parentheses was that it was Morgan Stern signaling to us, this isn't real. Right, and certainly whether or not that's explicitly what Morgan Stern is saying in the sense of this is fiction, um, this is uh, it, it is never it is inescapably I think a way in which it is made to feel less real. Um, the emotional impact is is much lessened. So I agree, Michael. The uh, the rapid fire impact, the 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 drama of the run on sentence here, the. Uh, the, the 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 emotional pain of the Fezzik run-on sentence uh, earlier on. Um, they are, I agree, in their narrative effect, precisely the opposite of those interruptions. Um, Fezzik's moment in the Zoo of Death. Um, there being both of them being strangled by the snake, and uh, uh, and Inigo has just said, "I had so many rhymes for you, Fezzik." Right, Inigo. 
I want to know the rhymes before I die. Inigo, I really want to know. Inigo, tell me the rhymes, Fezzik said. And by now he was very frustrated. And more than that, he was spectacularly angry. And one arm came clear of one coil, and that made it a bit less of a chore to fight free of the second coil. And that meant that he could take that arm and bring it to the aid of the other arm. And now he was yelling it out, You're not going anywhere until I know those rhymes. And the sound of his own voice was really very impressive, deep and resonant. And who was this snake, anyway? getting in the path of Fezzik, when there were rhymes to learn, and by this time not only were both arms free of the bottom three coils, but he was furious at the interruption, and his hands grabbed toward the snake breath, and if he didn't and he didn't know if snakes had necks or not, but were, whatever it was that you called that part that was under its mouth, that was the part that he had between his great hands, and he gave it a smash against the wall, and the snake hissed and spit forth and spit, but the fourth coil was looser. So Fezzik smashed it again, and a third time, and then brought his hands back for a bit a bit of leverage, and he began to whip the beast against the walls like a native washerwoman beginning to beat a skirt against rocks. And when the snake was dead, Inigo said, Actually, I had no specific rhymes in mind. I just had to do something to get you into action. One. One sentence. <laughs> um, good. <laughs> Kate Neville says, My name is Fezzik. Prepare to rhyme. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mary Rose points out that it's possibly the first time that Fezzik becomes angry and makes demands. Yes, we never see him saying things like, Tell me the rhymes! You're not going anywhere until I know the rhymes! Um, yes, yes, we see him uh, uh, becoming very emotional, right? Um, we've seen him becoming emotional before. This is a different emotion, right? We see him becoming very angry. Um, we see him breaking out. We see him inflicting deliberate harm. Um, <clears throat> he almost never does this, right? Fezzik, even when he's confronted, even when his own life seems at stake, really doesn't want to fight. Um, he gives the man in black, uh, just as it seems to me that Inigo part of him, at least secretly, kind of wishes that he would be bested, right? He would like to know that there's somebody better than him, that he still has something to strive for. Um, and this is why he's praying for the men in black to be a master and for him to be challenged. Um, so to Fezzik, I think, in in perhaps even a less secret part of his mind really wants to lose, he's giving the man in black uh, a chance, a, uh, you know, a fair chance, not just because he likes sportsmanship in general and adheres to you know, uh, uh, an honorable code rather than the dishonorable and unsportsmanlike way that Vizzini wants him to kill uh, the man in black. But again, also because he would really quite rather not kill this man, and it seems like maybe he has a better chance of not killing him if he goes that way. Um, the violence that Fezzik unleashes against the giant snake is unlike any violence we see him unleash anywhere else. Um, it is the most eager and thoroughgoing violence um, that we ever see Fezzik indulge in. And and again, it, this is Fezzik asserting himself. And it's the first time we ever see Fezzik asserting himself from his early days as a child when he says when he tries to assert himself at the beginning in that passage that we were looking at before, I won't go into the arena, I won't go. And his parents threatening to leave him behind uh, and to, you know, to to leave him alone. He is... Uh, he, and we almost never see him assert himself after that. Now he's he asserts himself. And he asserts himself and, be, again, be, you know, just as, in, as Inigo is there saying, I am still the wizard, right? Um, so Fezzik... 
he is still force is his domain, right? And he is not going to be over forced by a snake. Yeah, good. Um, yep, Sarah Powell is saying that you know uh, Inigo is inspired to protect Fezzik against the bats, and Fezzik is inspired in anger to save Inigo. Agreed, agreed. Um, we do see a nice symmetry there again. They, you know, again, I, it's it's another thing that's really cool. It's not just that their careers are in parallel like this, um, but the similarities between them and the and the interconnectedness of their of their journey seems to me really, really, uh, really, really fascinating. Um, okay, good. Um, yeah, Rachel Draper says it's interesting that Inigo doesn't threaten Fezzik in order to inspire him to action. Instead, he entices. Um, yes, he holds out in front of him. It might seem strange under the circumstance to say that he gives Fezzik a reason to live. Fezzik seems to be almost giving up. He's so paralyzed by his fear that he doesn't... I mean, Inigo has just been saying, fight back, Fezzik, right? We're being suffocated by this snake, but you're stronger than anything, right? So surely, do something. And Fezzik is like, I can't, I can't, I can't. Um, It's only when Inigo says, I have so many rhymes for you, right? That fe- the prospect of the many rhymes, um, which doesn't take much generalizing to see. Remember, it was it was the rhymes. The rhymes were at least sort of the symbol or the the, the emblem, sort of the representative of that life of comrade of camaraderie, um, that life of friendship that he sought in Inigo, that he was seeking so desperately as he was, uh, Alyssa, as you say, sort of hurtling towards the the cliffs of insanity, right? Um, that's the that's what rhymes mean to him, right? We, you know, we see how he associates rhymes with Inigo, and he's always thinking about the rhyming that they will do together. It's like in saying that he had so many rhymes for him, what Inigo is sort of holding out to him is like, imagine the lifetime of friendship and and rhyming we could have together, if you would only bestir yourself and destroy the snake that's killing us both, right? Um, Fezzik has something to live for and he makes a choice right he asserts himself and he chooses he chooses life he chooses friendship he chooses rhyming he's not just going to die he's not just going to be this passive creature that he's generally been ever since his parents abused him as a child right and uh and instead he becomes he doesn't change and we say well well so he becomes the super strong giant he's always been the super strong giant mm, yeah but it's uh it's different now. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, okay, then what happens? I want to look, of course, at the, you know. So they've they've descended into the underworld and overcome their fears. Now, the ending, the climax. Where do their stories end up? With Inigo, of course. We know where it is. It was really hard to pick a passage from his fight with Count Rugen. Um, Here's the best I could find that pointed to as many of the things as I wanted to talk about as I could find in one place. Count Rugen was a bit surprised that his point had been deflected, but there was nothing wrong with piercing a helpless man's shoulder. There was no hurry when you had him. Remember, this is, of course, Count Rugen, Mr. I'm writing a treatise on pain. McPherson was screaming again, Spaniards, give me a Pollock any time. At least the Pollocks remember to use the wall when they have one. Only the Spaniards would forget to use a wall. Slowly, inch by inch, Inigo forced his body up the wall, using his legs just for pushing, letting the wall do all the supporting that was necessary. 
Count Rugen struck again, but for any number of reasons, most probably because he hadn't expected the other man's movement, he missed the heart that, and, had, and had to be content with driving his blade through the Spaniard's left arm. Inigo didn't mind. He didn't even feel it. His right arm was where his interest lay, and he squeezed the handle, and there was strength in his hand, enough to flick out at the enemy, and Count Rugen hadn't expected that either, so he gave a little involuntary cry and took a step back to reassess the situation. Power was flowing up from Inigo's heart to his right shoulder, and down from his shoulder to his fingers, and then into the great six-fingered sword, and he pushed off from the wall, then with a whispered, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And they crossed swords. Begin, as he would have said when he was ten. Um... What do we see here? In this, and of course, the rest of this scene, in the climax of his career, right, the fulfillment of his goals. What do we see? Sarah Good, we see him uh, up against an impossible challenge, right? We saw him choosing to fight the man in black left handed because it would be over too quickly if he fought with his right right he wanted to give uh he wanted to give the the man in black a chance and make it a challenge right so we see him rising here when he's been you know he's been gutted by the knife of count rugen um and uh you know can can barely stand and is bleeding to death but um but yeah so we see him when he's facing that kind of challenge here we see him you know rise up uh and conquer that again it's like going back to his conflict with Wesley, but we see him going going beyond it, having gone through the journey back down into the pit of despair and descending to the underworld and overcoming his fears. He is still the wizard, right? Um, and uh, rec- you know, remembers his training, the voice of McPherson uh, in his mind, which seems to be sort of connected with his wizardliness, right? All of the things that he has learned, all of the masters he learned from. Um, yes, Kate, the the unashamedly romantic moment. Power was flowing up from Inigo's heart to his right shoulder and down from his shoulder to his fingers and then into the great six-fingered sword, and he pushed off the wall with a whispered hello. Um, The power flowing up from his heart, right? Um, There's a lot of emphasis on hearts in this scene, but of course, uh, again, notice no shade of... We're not laughing. Nobody's laughing now, right? There's nothing funny about this. There's no sardonic tone. There's no aside. There's no parentheses. Um, and instead, what we get instead is this almost fairy tale, almost straight up fairy tale language, right? This this power that's coming from his heart as he is finally, uh, you know, as as he's reaching down into you know his heart and his love and his memory for his father and his desire to avenge. I mean, all these things which could sound really, really corny if we wanted to make them sound, you know, really cloying and cliche, um, but they don't. I think it works. It works really well. Um, good. Of course, Brianna points out that the fight starting with the uh, you know the unexpected dagger throw puts the count in direct contrast to the honorable swordsmanship of Inigo and Wesley. Exactly. We see that being in that sense, kind of the reversal of the uh, of the initial conflict between between uh, Wesley and Inigo, um, and a nice contrast uh, there. But of course, we see 
Inigo overcoming this. Um, and as Philip points out, it starts with the running away, right? The, uh, the sort of uh, stunning anticlimax of the initial, of the initial conflict. Um, or that is, of the initial confrontation, when he finally confronts his father's murderer, and his father's murderer just turns and run away. We're told earlier that he had envisioned at many times, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd fantasized about what that would look like, right? And he'd imagined many, many different scenarios. Um, but the scenario that he was sort of most fond of, the image, how he really kind of hoped it would go, is that the Count would acknowledge the fact, like, yes, I killed your father, and they would fight. Right, and they would have a duel, and it would be a duel, right? Not a not a killing. It would be a duel, and he would overcome him fairly and honorably, and he would avenge his father's spirit. And of course, we see the the double way in which Count Rugen um, vastly disappoints those expectations. Um, yes, yes. Uh, several people are pointing out that Count Rugen seems to find Inigo's continued resistance inconceivable. Absolutely, he does. Um, yeah, yeah, good. So where does Inigo end up? Um, and of course here, I'm even referring very explicitly to the uh, parts that I haven't put on this on this passage here. Um, when he finally kills Count Rugen, Count Rugen's death is kind of beautiful in its way, right? Uh, Inigo is saying, we both appreciate justice, right? Um, and he is stabbing him next to his heart and below his heart and says to Count Rugen, do you see what I'm doing? Do you know what I'm doing? And Count Rugen says, you're cutting out my heart. And Inigo says, yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. You cut out my heart on that day when you killed my father. This is only just but it's just in ways that he himself doesn't understand. Wherein lies the justice of Count Rugen's death? It's beautiful. The justice of it is beautiful. What kills him? What is the what is the what is what what's the COD? What what's the coroner going to put on Count Rugen's death certificate? If they had a coroner, fear. Yes, Philip. The fear kills him. What is it that... What's the heart of pain? According to Count Rugen himself, the expert. What's the heart of pain? The central element of pain. Philip, exactly. Anticipation. Right? The anticipation. Inigo saying, I'm going to cut your... I'm halfway through cutting your heart out now. Right? And with the anticipation of the torment, he, he dies. Right, he just can't handle it, and his heart stops, and he gives out. Um, yes, exactly. As Kate Neville says, the student of pain learns the final lesson. The elegance of the death of Count Rugen, um, balanced against Count Rugen's torture of Wesley, is gorgeous. I mean, it's 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 really lovely in that way. And I, it might sound weird for me to be using words like lovely and gorgeous to describe the bloody uh, murder, you know, revenge killing of the Count in the end. Um, but it's that connection to his torture of Wesley that makes it, in my mind, really, really poetic. Because it's beyond even Inigo's... You know, Inigo is thinking of a... of He's thinking poetically as well, right? Um, you know, he's, 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 he's doing like... A, He's doing like 
he's literalizing a metaphor, right? You ripped out my heart metaphorically on that day. I'm going to rip out your heart literally on this day to sort of balance out the, the, the metaphors. He's thinking in explicitly poetic terms in his vengeance, but the vengeance, the actual death of Count Rugen is far more poetic um, than he himself, and, and far more just and fitting than he himself even realizes. And it's almost nice, in a sense, that he actually doesn't kill Count Rugen. Um, he's not a killer. You know, that insult at the heart of that chiastic five-fold insult that he gave Count Rugen as a ten-year-old, that is when he, Inigo, was a ten-year-old, um, he's not a killer. Right, he, he 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 doesn't want to kill Wesley, and he doesn't kill. Yes, of course, he inflicted wounds which would certainly have been mortal, but it wasn't the wounds that were the cause of death. Ultimately, the cause of death was fear and pain, exactly the instruments that Count Rugen himself had been so, uh, you know, uh, manifold is an adjective. There needs to be an adverb. I want to say manifoldly guilty uh, before. There you go, manifoldly. There's my word of the day, the adjectival form of manifold. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Okay. Um, and, all right. So he, Inigo, has a happy ending. Happy ending certainly in that he accomplishes his life goal of avenging his father. But, of course, a journey for revenge is one that always... Or rather, that never can be truly and perfectly satisfying, as Inigo himself verbalizes in that final moment, right? Offer me anything I ask for. I want Domingo Montoya, right? I want my father. Um, and he can't have that, right? And killing Count Rugen is going to bring his father back. Um, his own heart has been cut, was cut out on that day when he was 10. Cutting out Count Rugen's heart is going to give his own heart back. Right. So, in that sense, the quest for vengeance is always ultimately empty, um, can never really be satisfying. Um, but again, even that lack of satisfaction is acknowledged there in the end. And the fact that he is joined with Fezzik, and uh, incidentally, by the way, also to, Wes- to Wesley and Buttercup. There are these two other characters that tag along with Fezzik and, and Inigo at the end. Um, but, uh, but again, this gives, this gives us... Uh, you know, that's wherein the satisfaction really lies, right? His reunion with Fezzik, really, uh, is like the final happy, uh, happy ending um, of Inigo's career here. Um, had he just been alone? Had he been pursuing, you know, Count Rugen... Uh, you know, as he did through the years independently, and then found him and killed him in the street, and then what? What Then what would he do? Wander off and drink himself to death with brandy? Probably. I mean, what else is there to live for? He w- still wouldn't have his father back, and he would have no longer purpose. No, no goal, no purpose, nothing. A failure, right? Well, no, he would be succeeding, but still, then now where would he go? Um, but now, he's saved. Now, he has a happy ending because he has somewhere else to go and someone else to go to. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, how about Fezzik? 
Fezzik's end, of course, is in the one sense less dramatic, as he does not have a big culminating thing. Uh, you know, there's been a, there's been this obvious goal of Inigo's trajectory, right? As he's been on this uh, this quest, which has spanned decades, you know, the vast majority of his life. Um, Fezzik doesn't have any such concrete quest or any 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 concrete end to accomplish, and yet um, it uh, uh, yet nevertheless he does have an interesting sort of endpoint to his own particular trajectory. Um, Tom Hillman points out, by the way, one last comment on on Inigo there, that uh, uh, it's fascinating, uh, Tom says, that Inigo's revenge doesn't end in tragedy. Uh, you know, you could call this a revenge comedy, and Tom, I agree, those are, those are comparatively uh, unusual revenge comedies. Um, yeah. Yeah, normally you end up with more bodies strewn around. At the, I mean, and, and Tom, it looks like it's going that way, right? I mean, he's like half disemboweled. He's like putting his fist inside his abdominal wall, holding his guts in during the fight. I mean, you half expect, more than half expect, I at least three quarters expect uh, him to kill Count Rugen successfully and then kill over dead, Right, um, but he doesn't keel over dead. Um, so it's uh, it's Karita. Uh, I'm not making that up. It talks about that. It doesn't use the medical terms. Um, but remember, there's that moment where the narrator describes like him reaching his fist further into the wound um, and feeling like the squishy things and not wanting to think about what he was touching with his hand. Right. Uh, I mean, we we could have pretty clearly described uh, his his hand going inside the abdominal wall and touching his intestines. Um, it's a little gross, but uh, but uh, but there we are. Um, Tom says, "Is that the difference between uh, between drama and fairy tale?" Right there, maybe like stage drama. You mean you're thinking? You know, you're thinking about with revenge, tragedy, and so I assume you're thinking about 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 Shakespeare, for instance. Yeah, um, yeah, perhaps. Um, but again, I mean, and but though I mean, I think it's it's a really important point, Tom, that we get. Um, Inigo gets a fairy tale ending. And it has many of the, the sort of the detachment from reality. He should be bleeding to death. Even if he succeeds in killing Count Rukin, he, he should be bleeding to death. We don't even see him getting proper medical treatment afterwards. Presumably after he staggers off down the hall and finds Wesley and Buttercup, um, he's then going to leap down the 20-foot, from the 20-foot window, down to be caught by Fezzik with a punctured, <laughs> more than punctured, abdominal wall, right? Uh, and then ride off on horseback. Um, all without uh, even the flow of blood af- apparently being effectually staunched, much less anything else. Um, it's a fairy tale ending, right? We're invited to forget about that. Um... And we do, for I think we do forget about that. Um, anyway, that's uh, it's as I said at the beginning, the story of Fezzik and Inigo are like unapologetically romantic and fairy tale like. They're the ones that have the adventure. They're like the fairy tale heroes that go through in that wind and live probably happily ever after. We don't know. We'll come back to happily ever after next time, but. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, 
Fezzik. I was just talking about Fezzik. I was trying to transition to Fezzik here before I got drawn back. Okay. This is, of course, Fezzik showing up outside the window with the horses. Fezzik said, Oh, Inigo, I need you, please, Inigo. This is him recounting where he was when he came back and found Inigo was gone, and uh, he came comes back and finds Wesley gone, and he's all on his own, and goes chooses the wrong corridor and wanders off the wrong direction. Oh, Inigo, I need you, please, Inigo. I'm lost and miserable and frightened, and I just need to see a friendly face. They moved slowly to the window. Wandering lost and forlorn through the prince's garden was Fezzik, leaving the four giant whites. Here, Inigo whispered. Three friendly faces, Fezzik said, kind of bouncing up and down on his heels, which he always did when things were looking up. How adorable is Fezzik! Oh, Inigo, I just ruined everything, and I got so lost, and when I stumbled into the stables and found these pretty horses, I thought four was how many of them there were, and four was how many of us there were, too, if we found the lady. Hello, lady. And I thought, why not take them along with me in case we all ever run into each other? He stopped a moment, considering. And I guess we did. Inigo was terribly excited. Fezzik, you thought for yourself, he said. Fezzik considered that a moment, too. Does that mean you're not mad at me for getting lost? Um, <laughs> Nancy Fosberg thinks that hello, lady, uh, is a really great line. I agree. Uh, hello, lady. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. It's, a. Uh, it's an aside which invites us to laugh with Fezzik and not at him, right? Um, notice at the beginning we see Fezzik reprising his role briefly at the top of the Cliffs of Insanity. Here's Fezzik, he's left alone again, right? He finds that he's lost everyone, and he feels like he's, he's, he's screwed everything up. It's worse, in a sense, almost worse than the Cliffs of Insanity. Less bad because he had more reason to think it was permanent, right? He had seen the man in black coming and uh, presumably had just killed Inigo. He knew that Inigo was going to duel him to the death if he got up the cliff. So the fact that he's coming probably means that Inigo is dead, and we see earlier on, before the passage that, I, that, that we read, that he was, Fezzik was actively trying not to think about the fact that Inigo was probably dead. He found Vizzini's actual corpse, so he knows that Vizzini is dead. Um, and so his solitude... Um, there, after he awakes, is far more profound and, as far as he can tell, permanent. He has nobody left, and he may never have anybody anymore. His solitude here is less permanent, and therefore his despair seems to be less complete, and yet there's there's an element here that wasn't there before, um, which is that he feels personally culpable, that like he screwed everything up somehow because he lost everybody. He got lost, right? Um, and yet... Um, he, you know, he just needs to see a friendly face, and behold, three friendly faces, as he says. And all of a sudden he goes from despair to bouncing up and down on his heels, right? Um, Fezzik has a happy ending, has a happy ending too, where far from being left alone, he not only is reunited with Inigo, but also with Wesley and Buttercup. He finds not just one, but three friendly faces. Um, and that's where his trajectory ends. And what's more, we see him... uh, It's not just that he is... He thinks of himself, of course, as a failure. Um, He thinks of himself that he can't ever do... that he he can never do anything right. Right? Um, 
which of course we know to be untrue. You know, we can see him, you know, his kindness and gentleness and generosity and tenderness and loyalty and all of these things are of course very good things and we see him doing lots of good things, but he um he doesn't um he doesn't have that own sense of himself, right? His own self-image is still like the child whom everybody picks on because of something that he can't help, right? That he's just intrinsically a failure and there's nothing he can do, right? It's not my fault that I'm the biggest and the strongest, right? Um, uh, it's not my fault that I'm the biggest and the strongest. I, uh, you know, uh, uh, he couldn't help it. He's done something right, right? And we end here with Fezzik, um, and with Inigo's excitement, right? You thought for yourself, right? Look, you did a good thing. Um, uh, it's just, uh, it's just, uh, it's just beautiful. Um, and as Kate points out, we see Fezzik reunited with family, right? Fezzik sort of is, is like getting the family he didn't have, um, uh, he he does treat Inigo like a father, but of course it's also with Wesley and Buttercup here. It's almost like now the four of them are like a family, right? He has uh, he has Inigo. He does treat Inigo like a father uh, at times, um, but uh, I don't know. I mean, this it's like you know who's the you know we've got the potential parent figures you know who come in. I don't know. But anyway, it's it is it is like a family that he's joined with here at the end, and I think that that's really that's that's really important, um, and again a beautiful end to the arc, seeing where their arcs began. Um, yeah, Sarah King says he's probably been thinking for himself the whole time. He's just not very proactive. No, yeah, exactly. He's certainly not not assertive, right? Assertive is one of the words we were using before. But again, of course, he's been thinking for himself. Look at how he. You know, found and took and 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 um, healed. I guess you could say Inigo, right? When he found Inigo drunk, um, he was doing all the thinking and planning there, right? He doesn't give himself any credit for it, um, but uh, but again here, and he, nor is he sort of praised and made to realize that he did something right, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sarah Powell says that she thinks both Inigo and Fezzik have humility, uh, though Inigo hides his in brandy, which push, pushes them to do better, but Buttercup lacks that, which is why we're less sympathetic to her. Possibly. Possibly. Um, well, we'll come back to Buttercup and Wesley next time. Um, let me advance to the next slide, because here's something you don't see every week. Oh, end of slideshow. I did them all. How about that? Um, uh, this concludes, on time, our discussion of Fezzik and Inigo. And uh, and I have to tell you, <laughs> inconceivable, says Tom Hillman. Uh, very good, very good. Um, but... Uh, uh, anyway, no, Sarah Powell, it's not quite a first, but I will say it's rather unusual. Um, uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm getting roundly teased in the questions box here. Um, but uh, anyway, um, I have to say that 
I have my my you know looking at Inigo and Fezzik, you know, spending some time really thinking and looking at Inigo and Fezzik um, is um, you know has definitely changes my outlook on the story as a whole. Um, I still think that if we had nothing in the story other than Buttercup and Wesley, I wouldn't be a fan. Um, now, the question that I'm going to want to be asking as we move into next week and to the questions that we have to deal with next week, not only do we have to kind of resolve the Buttercup and Wesley situation um, as far as their characters are concerned, but as I said, I want to be looking at where we end up at, on the whole at the end of the story um, with Morgenstern, with the barber, as he calls him, his dad, um, with, uh, with the Goldman narrator, where we end and why we end that way and where all of this leaves us, what I'm going to, um, what I'm, what I'm especially going to be interested in asking in light of what we've been talking about today is where does this stuff, where does this stuff fit in? Um, it would be easier to draw conclusions about this story if all we did have were Wesley and Buttercup. It would be a far infinitely less enjoyable story, but it would be a little bit easier to draw conclusions. Um, oh, several of you are asking me if we're going to talk about Buttercup's baby. All right, I will confess, I had been kind of hoping nobody would bring up Buttercup's baby and I could avoid it. I, I will admit that's I was kind of I was kind of hoping that. But Cat Sass tweeted me about that before we even did class number one and I was like, oh it's not gonna work. I'm gonna we're gonna So we'll probably talk about Buttercup's baby. I doubt we'll have time next time. I'm not sure that I wanna add an entire extra class to talk about Buttercup's baby. But um Anyway, we'll I we'll probably get to it. Maybe how's that for a definitive answer to that question? Um, uh, I don't think I want to spend much time on it. Um, but uh, anyway, read it if you get a chance, um, because we may come to it some next time. Um, but, uh, anyway, well, I, I, I did no promises for next time, but I probably won't leave it entirely out either. Anyway, thank you very much for joining me on this momentous occasion. Uh, when I am here, I, we, we are all confronted with the plain visual evidence of the black screen here. Uh, and, uh, I look forward to it. next week. I'm going to be on the road again. Um, I'm going to be in Charlotte. Um, so I'm going to be broadcasting from uh, from my little apartment room um, I, I, I trust everything's going to be okay I'm planning to hold class as usual um, I did class from the same room last year and I should be able to do there shouldn't be a serious problem but um, there will be some, I won't have my won't have my nice backdrop behind me uh, next week uh, but anyway we should be able to be able to proceed as 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 predicted and get towards the ending of the story and solving all the riddles for next time. Uh, won't that be nice, as the king in the movie says. Thanks, everybody. Good night. See you next week. <laughs>